Welcome to episode 18 of Want to Hear Something Interesting? So Scott, do any of these names mean anything to you? Montague John Druitt, Michael Ostrag, Aaron Kaminsky, George Chapman, Thomas Cutbush, Francis Tumbletti, James Maybrick, Walter Sickert, Charles Cross, Frederick Deeming, Louis Dimeschultz, Neil Cream, and... Of course, Mrs. Percy. Not really. I mean, were they the starting defensive line for the Green Bay Packers? Go Pack Go! Go Pats? No, Go Pack. Go Pats. Unfortunately not. I'll give you another clue. They're all from London, England. Alright, well, I know soccer, or as the civilized say, football, but I don't know any of those names. No, they aren't soccer players. Any more clues? Sure. They were all alive in 1888 and the supposed activities of one of these people really focused around the Whitechapel neighborhood of London. Ah, so we're talking about Jack the Ripper, the madman of Whitechapel. We are, but in all seriousness, I'd like to warn our listeners with small children or weak stomachs to probably just turn us off and listen next month. We will be talking about the murders in some detail from the six-month reign of terror he put the people of Whitechapel through. That's right. You could just jump to the end if you're interested in any info on the Eclectic Media Project. So shall we hearken back to a day, a day that will live in infamy. Welcome to this episode of Want to Hear Something Interesting, a podcast where your hosts Scott Ahern and Chad Knight discuss a topic using research and personal opinion. The topics will be wide and varied, but approached with the researcher's eye. Will everything we say be 100% accurate? Probably not, but we are striving to be as accurate as we can be. Every month on the 1st, a new topic will come your way. Occasionally, though not usually, there may be some language of the adult variety. Listener, be warned. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Chad. Alright, so, how you been, man? Not too bad. Yourself? Good, good. Um, so, we're going to talk about Jack the Ripper. Okay. And... You know, he brutally murdered a lot of people. Well, yes. technically, I guess five. Though there are places that say up to 12 or 13 even in, during his reign of terror. Now, why does Jack the Ripper catch our imagination? Well, because while sex sells, violence sells almost as well. There's that. But there's also the fact that we don't know who he is. Or if it was only one. Correct as well. And in fact, when I was doing the research, some of the stuff I read was there was three attacks that ended in death, but they weren't instantaneous before the murders started. And then there was about another four after the murders officially ended. So what we're talking about today is the canonical murders. So we're going to be talking about the five murders. Okay. And I'm going to do them in order. And I'm going to go pretty in-depth with the first one because that's kind of the pivotal one that changed from them being just standard murders that happened at that time in London into, you know, the official file of this guy called Jack the Ripper. All right. And But then from there, we'll, we'll bring them back down and we'll just we'll touch the highlights. So, the first canonical victim was a lady named Mary Nichols. At around 3.40 a.m. on August 31st, 1888, 
a carter named Charles Cross was making his way along, or his way to work along Bucks Row, which is a narrow, cobbled Whitechapel Street that was lined on one side by dark, imposing warehouse buildings, and on the other by a row of two-story houses. As Cross approached the looming bulk of the 1876 board school that dominated, and still dominates, the western end of Bucks Row, he noticed a dark bundle lying in a gateway on the left side of the street. Like so many of the district's alleyways and passageways, street lighting in Bucks Row was minimal. So at first, Cross could not be sure what exactly the bundle was. It looked something like a discarded tarpaulin. And so, thinking that it might prove useful for his job, Cross went to inspect it. But as he drew closer, he realized it was in fact the prone form of a woman, who was either dead or drunk. As Cross stood, rooted to the spot and unsure of what to do next, he heard footsteps behind him. Turning, he saw another carter, Robert Paul, walking towards him. Come and look over here, Cross called. There's a woman lying on the pavement. The two men stepped gingerly over the road and stooped down over her. She was lying on her back, her legs straight out, and her skirts were raised almost over her waist. Charles Cross reached out and touched her face, which was warm, and her hands, which were cold and limp. I believe she is dead, he observed. Robert Paul, meanwhile, placed his hand in the woman's chest and thought he felt slight movement. Think she's breathing, he said, but very little if she is. Paul suggested that they sit the woman up, but Cross refused to touch her again. So deciding, perhaps somewhat callously, that they were late for work and had done as much as they could, they put her skirts back down to her knees to cover her decency and set off for their respective places of employment, agreeing to tell the first policeman they encountered of their find. But what neither man had noticed in the pitch darkness of Buck's Row was that the woman's throat had been slashed so savagely that her head had almost been cut from her body. That discovery was made by Beat Officer Police Constable John Neal, who turned into Buck's Row and proceeded to walk past the board school shortly after Cross and Paul had left the scene. There was not a soul about, he later told the inquest to the woman's death. I had been round there half an hour previously and saw no one then. I was on the right side when I noticed a figure laying on the street. It was dark at the time. I examined the body by the aid of my lamp and noticed blood oozing from a wound in the throat. She was lying on her back with her clothes disarranged. I felt her arm, which was quite warm from the joints upward. Her eyes were wide open. Her bonnet was off and laying at her side. As Neil stooped down over the body, he noticed John Thane, uh, another police constable, passing the end of the street and flashed his lantern to attract his attention. Here's a woman with her throat cut, he called to his approaching colleague. Run at once for Dr. Llewellyn. Now, when Dr. Llewellyn arrived at around 4 a.m., he carried out a cursory examination of the body, noting the severity of the wounds to the throat, pronounced life extinct. On closer examination, he also observed that the deceased's body and legs were still warm, although her hands and wrists were quite cold. This led him to surmise that she could not have been dead for more than a half an hour. In fact, this observation by the doctor suggested that the murderer may wait may have well still been at the scene when Charles Cross came strolling along Buck's Row on his way to work. As Llewellyn went about his grim business, news of the murder was beginning to filter through the immediate neighborhood. They were joined at the murder site by Patrick Mulshaw, a night watchman who was working at a nearby sewer works. Although he did confess that he sometimes dozed on duty, he was emphatic that he had been awake between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. and that he had not seen or heard anything suspicious. But at around 20 minutes to 5 five o'clock, a passing stranger had told him, Watchman, old man, I believe somebody is murdered down the street. And he immediately went round to Buck's Row. The police appear to have made attempts to trace Mulshaw's 
mystery informant, but their inquiries proved unsuccessful. And that's the end of that story. So, at this point, he had slit her throat. Yep. And that was about it. And her skirts were raised. And her skirts were raised, correct. But at this point, there was no mutilation to the rest of the body. Correct. So, on September 1st, or between September 1st and the 4th of 1888, the police began questioning the neighborhood's prostitutes. Uh, They learned about a character who the prostitutes had nicknamed Leather Apron, who had been extorting money from them for the past 12 months. On September 5th, the Star newspaper published a write-up on Leather Apron, which caused the first murmurs of anti-Semitism in the district. So not only did this start scaring people, it also started the the ever-famous at this time in history of blaming it on the Jewish people. Right. Which, for what it's worth, I don't think any of the people named were actually Jewish as possible suspects. So for what it's worth, there you go. All right, so the second victim, Annie Chapman, she was kind of a a wonderluster. She never stayed in one place for too long. Uh, She was 45 years old at the time of her death. She was a small, plump woman, which I think was pretty common back in that time. She enjoyed what we'd call a, or what they call a cordial relationship with the other tenants and the deputy housekeeper, Timothy Donan, who said she was inoffensive. She was, she was a washerwoman, but I'm sorry, she was a crochet. She did crochet work and she sold artificial flowers, but she had to supplement that with, unfortunately, prostitution, which was a real common side job for women at this time especially in you know the less wealthy parts of london which whitechapel was right they did say she had two regular clients one known as harry the hawker and the other a man named ted stanley a supposed retired soldier who was known for known to her fellow lodgers as the pensioner so who was the pensioner stanley actually if i we find out later on was neither a retired soldier nor a pensioner but was in fact a bricklayer's laborer who lived at number one, Osborne Place, Whitechapel. So he was leading two lives. So, Or at least he didn't want to tell his favorite prostitute his real name and address and what he did for a living in case she talked to somebody. Right, or the fact that, you know, it doesn't say whether he was married, which he probably was, you know. So it's just it was a matter of uh, discretion. Right. However, the two of them got into an argument with it ending in blows where Stanley, uh, Mr. Stanley, uh, punched her about the face and in the chest bad enough to bruise it where several days later she was still bruised. And in the end of her, one of, one of the last times they saw her was about three days later, about 5 p.m. on September 7th. Now, a friend of hers named Amelia saw Annie around Dorset Street. She looked even worse and complained of feeling too ill to do anything. She was standing in the same place when Amelia passed her again ten minutes later, although she was now trying desperately to rally her spirits. It's no use giving way. I must pull myself together and get some money or I shall have no lodgings. With the last words, Amelia Palmer heard Annie Chapman speak. So, a little before 6 a.m. on the 8th of September, John Davis, an elderly resident came out of his house, walked a narrow passage, and opened the back door. The sight that met his eyes sent him reeling back in horror. Moments later, two workmen walking along Hanbury Street were suddenly startled when, from the open door of number 29, a wide-eyed old man came stumbling into the street. Men, he cried, come here. Nervously, they followed him along the passageway, and looking into the yard, or looking into the backyard, they saw the mutilated body of Annie Chapman, lying on the ground between the steps and the wooden fence. 
Her head was turned towards the house, and her clothes had been tugged up above her waist, exposing her red and white striped stockings. A handkerchief was tied around her throat, and she had been wearing this when the killer cut her throat and had not, as it has often been asserted, been tied by the murderer to stop the head from rolling away. Her face and hands were covered in blood, and her hands were raised and bent with the palms towards the upper portion of her body, giving the inspector the impression that she had been struggling and had, quote, fought for her throat. So they call on a doctor again. This one arrives around 6.30 a.m., he said, casting a cursory glance down toward the body, it was more than obvious that the woman was beyond medical help. His testimony at the inquest recalled what he saw. The left arm was placed across the left breast. The legs were drawn up, the feet resting on the ground, and the knees turned outwards. The face was swollen and turned on the right side. The tongue protruded between the front teeth, but not beyond the lips. The tongue was evidently much swollen. The front teeth were perfect as far as the first molar, top and bottom, and very fine teeth they were. The body was terribly mutilated. I hate to stop there, but the fact that this doctor seems to be so outside of what happened here that he's commenting on her teeth seems a little morbid to me. A bit, but if you think about it, it's several days later. It's an inquest, so it's courtroom, and given how prevalent disease and murder was in London at that time, he probably had to be a little desensitized or he'd go bonkers. And it's it's a little bit of a stereotype, but especially Western Europe of that time period, people had horrible teeth. Yeah, that's true. So the fact that her teeth were in such good condition was actually something medically noteworthy. I, I suppose you're, you're right, yeah. So to continue on with the doctor's statement, the stiffness of the limbs was not marked, but evidence, commen- but evidently commencing. He noticed that the throat was uh, dissevered deeply, that the incision through the skin was jagged and reached right around the neck. On the wooded paling between the yard in question and the neck, smears of blood corresponding to where the head of the deceased lay were to be seen. These were about 14 inches from the ground, and immediately above the part where the blood from the neck lay. Later that day, the post-mortem would reveal that the killer had deftly cut out Annie Chapman's womb and had gone off with it. But at that hour of the morning, there was little more that Dr. Phillips could do at the scene, so, having pronounced the woman dead, he ordered that she be removed to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary on Eagle Street. He also said that the body was not to be touched until after the post-mortem. However, one of his nurses... Acting on instructions from the clerk of the warehouse guardians, had stripped and washed the body before the postmortem could be carried out. So evidence gone. Now right. they don't have they didn't have medical evidence like we do today. Correct. No but, DNA, no fibers, stuff like that. But they could tell a lot from looking at wounds right. about how they happened. But once it was cleaned up, that evidence is gone. Correct. So on September tenth, eighteen eighty eight, John Pizer, whom Sergeant Thick maintains is recognized as Leather Apron is arrested. He can, however, provide alibis for the two recent murders and is released. On September 27, 1888, a missive addressed to Dear Boss arrives at the Central News Agency. It is signed Jack the Ripper, a name which will turn the unknown miscreant into a world-famous legend. Now, there was two or possibly three, even though one's considered a forgery, of letters sent by Jack the Ripper. If you guys want to read the letters, you can... I'm not going to read them here, but if you want to read the letters, you can go out to jacktheripper.org, and they are on the website. They are disturbing. 
if you have issues with graphic detail, I don't recommend you read them, but they are out there. So let's move on to the third victim. Elizabeth, or Long Liz Stride, spent the last afternoon of her life cleaning rooms in the lodging house at number 32, where she had lived on and off for the previous six years. So they paid her six pence for her chores, and by 6.30, Elizabeth was slacking her thirst in the nearby Queen's Head pub. So now Elizabeth is not only a prostitute, she's a drunk. Mm-hmm. She's seen by a police constable that night. She's seen by a few other people, but she still turns up dead. So the most important witness to have seen Elizabeth stride in the 30 minutes before her body was discovered in Duckfield's yard was a Hungarian Jew by the name of Israel Schwartz. You don't get more Jewish than that. (laughs) Uh, He turned into Burner Street at around 12.45 a.m. and noticed a man walking ahead of him. The man stopped to talk to a woman who was standing in the gateway of Duff, Duckfield's yard. Schwartz was later emphatic that the woman had seen, he had seen was Elizabeth Stride, since it is likely that Israel Schwartz witnessed the early stages of Elizabeth Stride's murder. It is therefore possibly the only person ever to have seen one of Jack the Ripper's victims in the act of being murdered. His statement is worth close scrutiny, albeit he spoke no English, and therefore gave his evidence through an interpreter. It is also worth noting that his statement to the police, interviews he subsequently gave to journalists, do differ in certain details. However, the police do seem to have taken him very seriously as a witness. Now, his statement says that the man was about 5 foot 5, about 30 years old, fair complexion, small brown mustache, full face, broad shoulders, and appeared to be slightly intoxicated. As Schwartz watched, the man tried to pull the woman into the street but then spun her around and threw her onto the footway, whereupon the woman screamed three times, but not very loudly. Israel Schwartz appears to have believed that he was witnessing a domestic attack, and so he crossed the road to avoid getting involved. As he did so, he saw a second man standing, lighting his pipe. As Schwartz passed him, the man who was attacking the woman called out, apparently to the second man, the word Lipsky, at which point the second man began to follow him. Schwartz panicked and began to run and had managed to lose his apparent pursuer by the time he reached the nearby railway arch. The second man, Schwartz said, was aged about 35, about 5 foot 11, and had a fresh complexion, light brown hair, a brown mustache, and wore a dark overcoat with an old black hard felt hat. The presence of the second man is something of a mystery. It has suggested to some that the killer had an accomplice. So in this case, this, this Israel Schwartz sees Elizabeth Stride, he, she's struggling with a man. He thinks it's a domestic squabble. Yep. So he continues on his way. Because, unfortunately, that was also very common. Correct. And you didn't, if it was a family affair, it was a family affair. Nobody got involved. Right. And in, even today in law enforcement and everything like that, everyone will tell you that the most volatile and unpredictable situation to step into is a domestic disturbance because the emotions are running very high but there's a possibility that if someone from the outside attempts to intervene that everybody in the family will suddenly come together against the intruder right and that's actually i think been proven in some cases so now lewis Dimeschutz, which is another name from that initial list we had right finds the body so 
He is uh, the steward of the International Working Men's Educational Club, which was a socialist club that was had Jewish. It was like a Jewish fraternity, but it was based on socialism. Okay. At the time, now his job was hawking cheap jewelry that he made. Uh, but as he turned his pony and cart into the yard, his pony shied to the left and refused to go any further. Looking into the yard, Diemschutz saw a dark form lying on the ground close to the wall of the club. Leaning forward, he prodded it with his whip and tried to lift it. When this proved unsuccessful, he jumped down to investigate and struck a match to get a better view. It was windy that night, and the match was extinguished almost immediately. But in the brief seconds of flickering light, he saw what, that it was a woman lying on the ground. Thinking it might be his wife, he went to the club by the side of the entrance, finding his wife safe, told several club members. There's a woman lying in the yard, but I cannot say whether she is drunk or dead. That seems to be a kind of a, a reoccurring thing. Pretty much. I mean, it, unfortunately, and this continues even to this day, homeless people, or not even necessarily homeless people, but there are people who will drink themselves to the point of incapacitation, stumble, can't get up, and they just fall asleep or pass out where they are. Right. So, taking a candle, uh, Daimschutz returned to the yard with several other club members. Now he noticed the blood by the body, and those present winced in horror when they saw the woman's throat had been cut. The police come, they do a cursory search of the club Mm -hmm. and of the area around, the houses around the area. They don't really find anything. They don't find anybody covered in blood. They don't find anything like that. And then the doctor arrives at 1.16 a.m. and having pronounced the woman dead, gave it as his opinion that she had been dead for between 20 or 30 minutes. He noted that the woman was wearing a check silk scarf, a bow of which had been turned to the left and pulled tightly. At the inquest, he stated that he had formed the opinion that the killer had first taken hold of the back of the silk scarf and pulled his victim backwards onto the ground. He, however, couldn't be certain whether the woman's throat was cut whilst she was standing or after she had been pulled backwards. Once the killer had cut her throat, slicing through the windpipe, she would not have been able to cry out and would have bled to death in about a minute and a half. To the fourth victim. At more or less the exact moment that the body of Elizabeth Stride had been discovered in Dutfield's yard, another prostitute named Kate, or Catherine Eddowes, was being released from a police station in the city of London. She then went upon her way into Mitre Square, which is basically like a park, but it's enclosed on all four sides. Yep. There was three entrances, one grand entrance like most parks have, and then a couple smaller ones. So there was three entrances, like I said, a fairly wide one that came into from Mitre Street, the narrower St. James Place, known locally as the Orange Market, in the square, northeast corner, and the long, narrow church passage in the southeast corner that came from Duke's Place. Three Jewish gentlemen saw her with a man in Mitre Square, and one of them, named Joseph Lawden, Lawenday, saw what was basically Catherine Eddowes clothes. He never saw her face. Um, he did catch a brief glimpse of the man's face and was able to provide police with a description. He had the appearance of a sailor and was aged about 30. He was about 5 foot 9 inches tall, medium build. He had a fair complexion and a small, fair mustache. He uh, sported a red neckerchief, tied in a knot, wore a pepper and salt colored loose fitting jacket, and had on a gray peaked cloth cap. Oh, he said that they were talking, they were doing nothing particularly suspicious. He also maintained that he would not be able to recognize or identify the man were he to see him again. 
And Catherine's body was discovered 15, minute late, 15 minutes later in Midas Square, a few steps away from where the three Jewish men had seen the couple. And then there's a high probability that the man he saw was the murderer of Catherine Eddowes. This makes it highly likely that Lowende saw the face of Jack the Ripper. Yep. At 1.44 a.m., police constable uh, Watkins, uh, on his nightly patrol, was into uh, Mitre Square, found Catherine Eddowes lying on her back in a pool of blood with her clothes thrown up above over her waist. Racing across the square, Watkins burst into Keerley and Tong's warehouse where he knew retired policeman George Morris was working as a night watchman. For God's sake, mate, cried Watkins, come to my assistance. Here is another woman cut to pieces. Pausing to get his lamp, the night watchman followed Watkins to the square's southwest corner, took one look at the body, and raced off along Mitre Street towards Aldgate, blowing fiercely on his whistle as he ran. The doctor comes, examines the body. Okay, so Sequeira was at the scene by 1.55 a.m. and later told the inquest that the place where the murder had occurred was probably the darkest part of Mitre Square. Although there had certainly been enough light for the miscreant to perpetrate the deed. Death, he said, would have been instantaneous once the murderer had cut the windpipe and the blood vessels. Significantly, he was of the opinion that the murderer possessed no great anatomical skill. In other words, he had only a basic knowledge of anatomy. And when asked if by the coroner if he would have expected the murder to be bespattered with blood, replied, not necessarily. But at the scene of the murder in the early hours that morning, Sequeira did little more than pronounce life extinct and decided not to touch the body, preferring instead to await the arrival of the city police division surgeon. They searched the area. When talking to city detectives, they hadn't seen anything in the area. And so we have two murders in one night. Yep. Within a mile and a half of each other. Okay. It's pretty ballsy. Right. But if you think about it, most of his other victims had been found fairly quickly, which means that the earlier victim is going to be drawing most of the attention. Right. And at that point, they um, I have read that there was places where they think Jack the Ripper may have walked through the oncoming policeman to the first murder. Yep. Which gave him the moxie i guess to commit a second murder because everybody was at the first murder right but i mean i just think of it from my brain and if i had just killed somebody i wouldn't just nonchalantly walk through the cops you know well yeah but you're not the type of person to kill somebody well that's true too so i mean the level of detachment and clinical level psychosis that must be going on here just uh he is if it was one person he's a psychopath and so what normal people think of as the way you behave doesn't apply yeah i suppose i suppose it's just i don't know just the the whole idea of the whole thing just kind of makes you shudder a little bit you know yeah but you've watched a lot of police shows oh, yeah. cop movies and stuff and in a lot of them, they, they make a comment about how whenever you're at the scene of some particularly gruesome or violent crime or like an, a big arson or something, detectives will always kind of surreptitiously scan the crowd because there's a belief in law enforcement and, and it's borne out often enough that it's a little more than anecdotal evidence, but that the criminal wants to see their work appreciated. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes you can find somebody in the crowd that's maybe paying 
a little too close of attention to things, or maybe everybody else is looking at the body and this person's looking at the police looking mm-hmm. at the body. Mm-hmm. So, Well, now what a lot of our <laughs> listeners don't know is you actually spent some time as a police officer. Yes. Did you ever have to... Did you ever... Were you ever called to a murder scene or anything like that? Fortunately, no. Okay. Um, when I was doing some of my training, and um, as some of our listeners may know, in the state of Wisconsin, all police officers are required to be first responders. Um, largely because in some of our more rural areas, the police or sheriff's deputy is the first one there. An ambulance may not get there for half an hour or so, especially if it's a volunteer ambulance service where... Somebody has to call 911, then you page the ambulance staff who have to go to the fire station or wherever the ambulance is, load it up, and then drive out. So I have responded to bad accidents, like car accidents Mm -hmm. and stuff, but fortunately never a murder or an arson. Okay, okay. So on October 1st, moving on, 1888, the police make the Jack the Ripper letter public. It was printed in all the... Papers in London, basically. On October 6th, the Central News Agency receives another letter that is signed Jack the Ripper. The police ask them not to make this missive public. And that's because this is the one that they think is bogus. Right. They Copycat. think it, somebody was copycatting. Somebody was just trying to get something out there. And then on October 16th, Mr. George Lusk receives a letter that is dressed from hell. It contains half a kidney, and there's press speculation that it belonged to Catherine Eddowes. Which later on, years later, when they were able to figure that kind of stuff out, they're pretty sure it belonged to an animal and not even to a human, let alone Catherine Eddowes. So, Jack the Ripper's final victim. At 25 years old, Mary Kelly was much younger than the other victims of Jack the Ripper. All of them between, I think the youngest before that was 35 through 45 or 47, I can't remember exactly. The Daily Telegraph described her as being of fair complexion, with light hair, and possessing rather attractive features. Remembering her in, the memo- in his memoirs 50 years later, Walter Drew claimed that he had known her quite well by sight and told of how she had often seen her parading along Commercial Street between Flower and Dean Street and Algate and or Whitechapel Road. Um, she was, he continued, usually in the company of two or three of her kind, meaning of prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Fairly neatly dressed and invariably wearing a clean white apron, but no hat. She appears to have been well-liked in the area, and the only bad thing those who knew her could find to say about her was that she was occasionally tipsy. All right, so she had been with this man named Barrett. Um, They had been together for quite a while, but when she had to go to prostitution to make ends meet, he had left her. He couldn't deal with that, so he had left her, but they stayed on friendly terms. And he had seen her, last seen her alive uh, the night before she died, or the night before she was found anyway, between 7.30 and 7.45 at night. All right, so the police decided, because he didn't really say whether it was he saw her last between 7.30 and 7.45, or he had left between 7.30 and 7.45, the police ended up deciding that it was the latter, Mm -hmm. that that's when he had last seen her. She was being visited also by a friend named Lizzie Elbrook. Uh, According to Barrett, as he left, he had told Mary Kelly that he had no work and was very sorry that he was unable to give her any money. Barrett returned to his lodging house and played whist until 12.30 a.m., at which time he retired to bed. Do you know what whist is? Do you know what the game is? Um, 
I've played a version of it called Honeymoon Whist, which is for two players. Okay. I think it's normally for four or five, perhaps. Okay. I'm not familiar with the game, but... It, it's uh, a, a trick-based game, kind of like Bridge, okay. to a certain extent. Okay, so now we're just going to run through the last few days of Mary Kelly and what they know and what they don't know. So on November 7th, 1888, Mary Kelly purchased a candle at John McCarthy's shop on Dorset Street. She was later seen talking to a smartly dressed man aged about 28 in Miller's Court by McCarthy's assistant, Tom and Boyer, Thomas Boyer. On November 8th, 1888, she spent the afternoon with a friend, Maria Harvey, and the early evening with another friend, Lizzie Aldbrook. At 7.30 to 8 p.m., Joseph Barrett visited her for what he was described as a friendly visit. <laughs> On November 8th at 11.45 p.m., neighbor Marianne Cox saw her returning home with a stout, shabby, blotchy-faced man who was in his 30s. He had a carroty mustache and a Billy Cock hat. Mary Kelly was drunk, and she told Mrs. Cox she was going to sing. Around midnight, several neighbors heard Mary singing, Only a Violet I Plucked from My Mother's Grave. On the 9th of November at 2 a.m., George Hutchinson met her on Commercial Street. She asked him for sixpence. He declined on account of the fact that he was spent up. Mary continued along Commercial Street and began talking with a man near the junction with Thrall Street. The two then backtracked along Commercial Street, and Hutchinson followed them along Dorset Street, where Mary Kelly led the man into Miller's Court. Hutchinson waited on the other side of Dorset Street for 45 minutes, but neither the man nor Mary Kelly emerged, and he left. On November 9th, around 4 a.m., several neighbors heard a faint cry of murder from the direction of Mary Kelly's room. Uh, between 8 and 10 a.m., several people claimed to have seen Mary Kelly in the surrounding streets. And then at 10.45 a.m., John McCarthy sent Thomas Boyer around to 13 Miller's Court to collect Mary Kelly's overdue rent. He got no reply when he knocked on the door, so he went around to the window and saw her horribly mutilated body laying on the bed. Okay, I'm not going to go into detail about that one because the last murder was probably the most gruesome of them all. Right. And as you noticed, as I got through them, I went into less and less detail Mm -hmm. because this is a family show. Right. But, so that's the reality of it. Now, like we do with most of our topics, you're going to look more at the entertainment side of it, where it's come, what it means in current circles of entertainment and and books and that kind of stuff. So Right, and like I mentioned earlier, sex sells, violence sells almost as well. And you don't, with the whole prostitute aspect to it, we're getting combinations of sex and violence. So it's no surprise that a lot has been done with this whole story in the entertainment industry and in popular culture. Yeah, it would almost it would almost seem odd had it not. Well, there are some things that and it, it's never really been something that somebody steps up and says, you can't make a movie about this. But right. there are some things that common decency almost, which unfortunately we seem to be in short supply of. Yeah, right nowadays. now, especially in um, video entertainment. Right. Now, there, and, and I, I'm sure you mentioned this, but I have seen countless documentaries yes. on Jack the Ripper. But I don't know if I've really ever seen any movies. I was actually surprised at how many movies I ran across, but 
I suppose not surprisingly, there's the truism that there there are no new ideas in Hollywood, and that we was, can tell that by all the remakes. <laughs> yes, and that was one of the things that I discovered. So the the first real Jack the Ripper movie um, was a silent film from 1921 called The Lodger. Okay, so that would have only put it about 40 years after the murders. Uh, not even if we're thinking 1888, that's 33 years okay. after the first one. Okay. So, um, but one of the, the things that struck me about this one that I found was really interesting was it was one of Alfred Hitchcock's first films. Really? Yes. And what's it called? The Lodger. You know, I have a large collection of Hitchcock movies. They came in a multi-DVD set. Right. And I think that's one of them. I don't think I've seen it though. It could be. Yeah. Uh, the basic premise of it is that a London landlady suspects her tenant is Jack the Ripper. Okay. So, uh, unfortunately, with it being a silent film and from all the way back in 21, there's not a whole lot of info about it. There However, if that, is, if, it, <laughs> if that is actually one of them that I have, we'll have to sit down and watch it sometime. Yep. So, uh, the next one was called The Phantom Fiend. Okay. Uh, this was from 1932. And essentially, they just remade The Lodger with sound and voices. They made it a talkie. Okay. Was it still um, it Hitchcock? Or... It was not Hitchcock, okay. but it starred the same actor, a man named Ivor Novello. So he was the star of Hitchcock's film. Well, he, he was is the, he the namesake the of the Ivor Novello Award? It could be. That That's something I'll have to look at, because yep. that would be kind of neat. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, then we come up to 1944, which is another remake of The Lodger, titled The Lodger. Okay. So they didn't even come up with a new title for it. Uh, this is, however, a completely new actor, new director. Sorry. Is it the same basic story, yes. though? Yes, it, okay. it's exactly the same story. Okay. <laughs> um, 1950 gives us a little twist in Room to Let. The big twist in this one is it's not the landlady who suspects, it's the other tenants. Okay. Um, but the one interesting thing I, I thought of it was the character who is the, the suspect calls himself Dr. Fell. Dr. Fell. Okay. Yes, and of course, Fell as an adjective means dire or evil. Right. So, uh, 1953 gives us Man in the Attic. Now, this one is has some interesting notes to it that have nothing to do with the Jack the Ripper story. Okay. So, the, the tenant who is suspected of being Jack the Ripper is what the, the listing calls a self-described pathologist. So, when people ask him what he does for a living, he says, well, I'm a pathologist. I study dead things. Okay. The other really interesting thing is it's played by Jack Palance. Oh, man. He must have been young. Yes. Uh, now, for those of you who are like, I know that name. In the 1950s, especially, and into the 60s, he was Hollywood's go-to villain. And he was actually nominated for a couple of Oscars back then for some of his roles. The only Oscar he actually won, however, came in 1992's City Slickers. Really? He won Best Supporting Actor opposite Billy Crystal in the film. See, now, where I think of Jack Palance from is from the 1989 Batman movie. Yep. 
where he played the mob boss. Mm -hmm. And he really kind of creeped me out in that role because he played it so well. Yes, he he has this... Uh, part of it is his demeanor. Right. And he's got this voice that it can be dry, it can be raspy, it can be warm, but it's always got this little bit of a menacing edge to it. Right, and it's always just slightly breathy. Yep. You know, and... Yeah, that's where I think of Jack Palance. But, I mean, I've seen him in other things. City Slickers is a yep. good one. But, yeah, even when he's not the bad guy, he's kind of the bad guy. Right. So he's one of those actors that whenever you see him, either in the film or in the opening credits before he makes his first appearance, you're like, oh, that's the bad guy. Right, yeah. yeah. Because that, that's what he does. It's what he's famous for. And so. I've seen him in the role of the good guy, and it just doesn't play as well. Yep. It doesn't. Yeah. All right. The first foray into television for Jack that I was able to come up with was a TV series that had a 1958 episode called The Veil. Okay. Right, the, the TV show is The Veil. The episode was called Jack the Ripper. And the main character of the series is a clairvoyant. Okay. And so the, the clairvoyant starts to have visions of the murders. So it's actually, this particular one is set in the time of the murders. Okay. Um, but because of the clarity and detail of the visions, the police start to suspect that he's the murderer because he knows things that weren't publicized that nobody else but the murderer could have known. Okay, so it's kind of that twist of yep. because you're a clairvoyant and you know all this stuff, it must be you. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, And actually, that that motif has come up repeatedly in movies and tv shows especially when you have like an authority figure who doesn't believe in psychics right they assume that it's the killer either getting his or her jollies off of it or trying to make a couple extra bucks and getting involved in the investigation to make sure that it doesn't lead back to them right it's just like um that show dexter now i don't know if you've ever seen an episode of dexter i have not but i'm familiar with it yeah so that the whole idea is he's a cop or he works with the police. I don't know if he's actually a cop because I've never seen it either. But he's a serial murderer that murders other serial murderers. Right. I believe he's the um, either the medical examiner or the pathologist, forensic right. pathologist or whatever. But so he can kill these people and then, you know, they never solve the case because the guy that they're looking for is looking for himself. Right. 1959 gives us the brilliantly inspired titled movie Jack the Ripper. Oh, oh, I thought you were going to say The Lodger. No, <laughs> but here's the twist. An American detective is brought over to help Scotland Yard solve the murders. Ooh. Did you have the name of that American detective? I do not. Okay. So, 1961 gives us television series Thriller with the episode titled Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, hearkening back to the letters, letters written. Yeah. Uh, however, this one is set in New York. 70 years after the Whitechapel killings. And Jack the Ripper's now 95? Uh, actually, uh, the main character in the episode is trying to convince the police that Jack is alive, eternally young, and killing again in New York City. But there is an interesting little bonus in this. It starred Boris Karloff. As Jack the Ripper? Uh, probably. Or the, the suspect. And now most people re remember the name Boris Karloff from monster films, yep. but he's always in heavy makeup. This one was actually just Boris. Right. 
So now it's it's funny because one of the names that I didn't put into there that was thought that he would possibly have been Jack the Ripper then moved to America and actually set up shop in Chicago where he was eventually caught after killing scores of women during the um, Chicago World's Fair. Yep. Uh, and his name was H.H. Holmes. And he is one of the more prominent people that have been considered to be Jack the Ripper, of course, because he moved to America in about 1889, I think, or late 1888, and then set up basically a, a murder factory. You know, he had rooms where he could lead you in and then you couldn't get out, and he had slides and everything built into this where all the bodies ended up in the basement, and he would do these weird examinations on them and then burn you in the the oven, you know? Yeah. So um, Sweeney Todd, anyone? Yeah, but just a little more gruesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah, so th- I mean, that was one of those things where it's kind of a weird thing. But with that, you know, it kind of makes makes you hearken to those other thoughts of the ones that came to America. Yep. So uh, then we get a 1964 German film, Das Ungeheuer von London City. So it's set in 1960s London. Okay. Where Jack the Ripper's spirit is manifesting and murdering again. Okay, so a little supernatural twist yep. on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, then 1965 gives us a study in terror. And a lot of people like this one because it's a Sherlock Holmes film. Okay. So essentially you have the fictional detective pursuing Jack the Ripper. What most of the commentary about it was is that it's a good Sherlock Holmes film, but it's a bad Jack the Ripper film because they get most of the details wrong because it, it's more, okay, we're making a Sherlock Holmes movie. Who's the bad guy going to be? How about Jack the Ripper? Okay, plug him in. So now, Sherlock Holmes, when was the character of Sherlock Holmes active? Would, um, that, would those times have overlapped? They, they would have overlapped because okay. uh, Conan Doyle was publishing in the Strand magazine, I believe, Starting in 1875, 1880. Okay. Somewhere around there. Okay, so at least time-wise it makes sense. Right. But you're right. If they just did that, if they're just like, ooh, let's make a Sherlock Holmes movie, and then they're like, bad guy? Jack the Ripper, why not? Yep. Yeah, that that's, you know, again, that's just poor work on somebody's yes. part. So, um, and then uh, when I ran across this one, I remembered seeing it. It's from the uh, TV series Get Smart with Don Adams and Barbara Feldon. Yeah, okay. So there was actually a two-part episode called House of Max back in 1970. Okay. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with the series, it's about the U.S. spy agency Control. Maxwell Smart, Secret Agent 86 for Control, is a bumbling spy. It's, it's a comedy. It was kind of like a spoof on the entire Cold War setup. Um, but then Agent 99 was hot. So. Barbara Feldon was and still is gorgeous. Yeah. Their main adversary was Chaos, K-A-O-S. And the man that represented Chaos was uh, Stricker, who was played by Bernie Kozar, who most people would probably recognize as the doctor from The Love Boat. Oh, okay. Yep. So it, it's very interesting seeing those two characters and realizing it's the same person. Um, and in fact, Bernie Kozar made a cameo in the 
uh, Steve Carell film remake of Get Smart with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. That's right. I do remember that. He was that. the older German-accented guy in the small sports car that gets smashed in front of the Smithsonian when um, Max is trying to steal the car. Yep, I remember <laughs> that now. So, But anyways, in this two-part episode, um, a wax museum owner in London has found a way to bring his statues to life. And okay. one of the statues is Jack the Ripper. And so Max and 99 end up being sent to London to aid Scotland Yard and MI5 and MI6 in stopping this crime spree because they can't figure out how this is happening because the murderers go back to the museum and become statues again. Right, right. Okay. Uh, 1971 movie, Hands of the Ripper. Here we get into a little bit of psychological trauma. That actually sounds like something you'd see on uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Could be. Um, but it's a little darker. Okay. Uh, the premise of this one is that Jack the Ripper has a daughter. Okay. Who watches him murder her mother. And the trauma of that leads her to become the next Ripper when she becomes an adult. Okay. She carries on his murder spree. Okay. I so. get it. I, I... Mm-hmm. 1972's television series The Sixth Sense. We're pulling a little bit more of the paranormal back in. Okay. Had an episode titled With Affection, Jack the Ripper. Again, hearkening back to the, the, the letters. letters. yep. And in this one, a psychic trying to use ESP to go back in time accidentally makes contact with the mind of Jack the Ripper and ends up becoming possessed by his killing spree type of thing. They're trying to use ESP to time travel? Yep. I don't think whoever wrote this knew how ESP worked. Not so much, no. <laughs> but it... it might have been into that might have been one of the things that led to uh, quantum leap so remember the premise of that was that you could tra- time travel within your own lifetime basically right. his mind jumped into other people right that's true yep uh 1972 also gave us the movie seven murders for scotland yard okay which is basically the jack the ripper story but he's also a cannibal he eats his victims well, that has been brought up as a possibility that what he stole, what he took, he would eat. Mm-hmm. But that's never been proven proven or of a high – I mean, I've read it. Yep. But it's never been like one thing that always comes out. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, 1973 gave us a very interesting documentary titled Jack the Ripper. It was hosted by these two actors who play a fictional detective team on TV and movies. Okay. And so they're in character going doing the documentary. Okay. And they go through the evidence. They reenact some of the crimes. So it was kind of interesting. And what's interesting. that called? Did it's it... just called Jack the Ripper. I'm going to have to see if I can find that one. Because nope. that sounds actually like it might be very interesting. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, 1974 gave us the TV episode The Ripper from the show Kolchak the Night Stalker. Now, I used to catch this on Sci-Fi Channel. Back okay. When they used to have, like, a Mon- Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday was a different theme. Right. Like, Monday was superheroes, Tuesday was crime or detectives, whatever. Um, it's a kind of a noir uh, series. Uh, but this one has Jack the Ripper is a caped superhuman murderer. So basically, he's been going along ever since the 1880s. Right. Um, he now wears a, a cape, and he's super strong and can fly and stuff. Okay. So, 
1975 gives us a foreign comedy film called A Man with a Maid. Okay. Basically, that this man wants to build himself a little love nest, so he buys an old insane asylum. Okay, I see where this is going. Yep, and he refurbishes it, um, but then discovers that Jack the Ripper is living in the secret passages that are built into the asylum for the staff to get back and forth through. Okay. So, But it is a comedy film. So, I don't um, know how you can really turn anything Jack the Ripper into comedy, you right. know? Not, I don't think it would be very good. Not so much, no. Uh, 1979 gives us Murder by Decree, another Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper film. Okay. This one do- actually does have a, a nice little twist to it. In investigating the murders, Sherlock discovers that there is a conspiracy to protect Jack the Ripper. Oh, okay. Um, making it look like he is a special operative for powerful government figures who kills to cover up scandals. That's an interesting would, take. Which would explain why he's killing prostitutes. Right, right. So basically, he's not a serial killer. He's, he's a, a killer. He's a, he's a killer for hire. Yeah. So, uh, 1979 also gave us Time After Time. Uh, This one throws another literary figure in, H.G. Wells. Okay. Jack the Ripper steals Wells' time machine. So Wells has to pursue him into the future in London. Okay. To stop him from killing again. I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds a little far-fetched, but it might be an interesting watch. Yep. Um, A 1980 episode of the TV series Fantasy Island. I think I might have actually seen this episode. I remember seeing a few episodes because it was on After Love Boat. Right. And my mom and my grandmother loved watching Love Boat. And um, my mother also loved watching Fantasy Island. Yeah. So, Ricardo Montalban. As soon as we got through the, the plane, boss, the plane, mm-hmm. the kids, we were gone. Yep. It was a... Boss, boss, the plane, the plane. Yeah. Hervé Villachez. Yep. He played Tattoo. But some of the episodes of Fantasy Island were really cool, and some of them were really disturbing. Oh, okay. And this was one of the more disturbing ones. Well, it was a fantasy. Right. It's called With Affection, Jack the Ripper. Okay. Um, And this was a woman is writing a book about Jack the Ripper. And her fantasy is to go back to 1888 Whitechapel to investigate in the, the middle of it and get some evidence. And, of course... Things go horribly wrong. Of course, like everything on Fantasy yeah. Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1985 gives us The Ripper. Uh, this is a little uh, Lord of the Rings twist okay. to it. A college professor puts on a ring that belonged to Jack the Ripper and is taken over by the spirit and goes on a killing spree. So instead of the one ring, yeah. we got the Jack the Ripper ring. Yep. All right. It's the Ripper ring. The Ripper ring. <laughs> Ooh. I just thought of a nice, like, bad artifact for a game. Curse magic item? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, t- Made-for-TV documentary was from 1988 called The Secret Identity of Jack the Ripper. I've actually seen that one. Yes. So you have a, a panel of experts in a courtroom-style setting analyze the five main suspects. Yep. So... Then there's a, a whole bunch more movies, but then one thing I, I thought was kind of interesting was 1996 gave us a video game called Ripper. 
Never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Basically, de- depending on which which version you like, which avenue you take, you can be Jack or you can be the police. Okay. But what was noteworthy about it were some of the voices in it, and like the the actors that they hired for it. Right. Because you've got Christopher Walken. Oh God. Burgess Meredith. Okay. The Penguin from yep. the old Batman TV series. Karen Allen from Animal House and um, the Indiana Jones movies. Oh, okay, okay. And David Patrick Kelly. He was on the, the 80s TV show Hardcastle and McCormick. I never saw that one. Okay. I never watched that one. Yeah, he, he was the ex-con that uh, Judge Hardcase Hardcastle, when he retires and decides to become a crime fighter, he gets David Patrick Kelly's character, McCormick, who was a, a race car driver. Okay. So one of the, the nifty things was they were driving around in this like super high-end sports car. Nice. Which I, I was thinking about the other day because I was driving through Stevens Point, and I see somebody driving a Lotus down Business 51. What? Yeah, I'm like, what is a Lotus doing in central Wisconsin? Right. Especially in the middle of road construction season. Just visiting. I guess, <laughs> yeah. So... Um, then a, another movie that a, a lot of people probably still remember, and I was thinking about mentioning it when you were going through your stuff, because it's where they got the title. Okay. It's From Hell. Okay. With Johnny Depp and Heather Graham. Right. So, and then, uh, the, the first couple of things that popped into my mind when we talked about doing this episode, um, were two of my favorite TV series, Sanctuary and Warehouse 13. Yes. Now, in Sanctuary, Jack the Ripper comes up a couple of times. Um, There's one of the characters who is able to teleport. And part of what makes him able to teleport has also pretty much made him immortal. Okay. But it's also driven him insane because they come to find out that he's been possessed by this alien entity thing. Okay. And so the, the main character thinks that... This man, who unfortunately for her happens to be her ex-husband and father of her daughter... Of course. ...might have been Jack. Okay. And one of their close friends, Dr. John Watson, who apparently gave Arthur Conan Doyle the concept for Sherlock Holmes, also suspected, and so they, they were always working to try to see if they could prove that it was him or not. Okay. But then there's another episode where they flash back to 1880s London... And they're chasing a monster that they call Springhill Jack. Okay. Who is, basically, he's clawed, he eats human flesh. And so he went after the prostitutes because they were walking alone at 3 o'clock in the morning when he wanted to hunt. And let's be honest, in 1880s London, nobody missed a prostitute. Right. And part of the reason that no one was ever able to find him, even though they usually found the bodies pretty quickly was that he had massively powerful legs that he could jump from street level up to the top of those two-story buildings. Okay. Which is why they called him Springheel. Right. So, and then in Warehouse 13, the char- not so much the character of Jack the Ripper comes up, but there's an artifact that they find that's called Jack's Lantern. Yep. And it was kind of like one of the lanterns that the constables would carry. But what... And they, they say... It, it kind of explained why Jack was always able to slit their throats so thoroughly and violently, even though the women weren't necessarily incapacitated, is that if you look at the light from the lantern, 
it paralyzes you and makes you completely unaware of your surroundings or the passage of time. It just kind of freezes you. Right. A whole lot. There have been um, some essays written about it. Um, most of the literature about it is more in passing, like referencing that this particular piece might have been influenced by the Whitechapel murders that had occurred within the last five years or so. Okay. You get the, the occasional knockoff Sherlock Holmes crossover. Uh, Conan Doyle never actually wrote a Jack uh, an actual Sherlock Holmes versus Jack okay. Ripper piece. But other once Sherlock Holmes passed into public domain, other people appropriated the character and, and did some stuff. And, and it makes sense from the timing of Sherlock Holmes and... I'm guessing Conan Doyle just didn't want to do that because it would have been fresh in his time. Right. It, it would have sensationalized it, um, but then also Conan Doyle was so successful with Sherlock Holmes that there was still a little bit of an issue in the public's mind. Well, isn't Sherlock Holmes real? Or isn't it based on a real detective? And then people would be saying, why don't you get Sherlock Holmes on Jack the Ripper? Right, right. And you'd have to explain. He's fictional. Right. He's the so. he's the wandering mind person of some guy that's high on cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, all right. So why don't we wrap this one up? We always give you an update on Eclectic Media Project. The update this month is there's not really an update. Um, we've all had... Uh, Personal things going on, personal things that keep us from doing the fun stuff. And so we didn't really get that much done this month. Not a whole lot. I mean, as most of our listeners know, I'm a high school teacher. So I've just gotten through finals and the seniors graduating and getting all of that squared away. So and hopefully I'll have a, a little bit of time to work on it. And I've spent a good portion, uh, a good portion of the last six weeks traveling between Wausau and Chicago. So that keeps me uh, relatively busy, but uh, no worries. It's coming. Um, right now, the plans are hopefully to launch in August or September, um, which brings me to the next point, and that's the fact that in September, you will not get an episode of Want to Hear Something Interesting. Correct. We're actually taking the month of August off to do and, and prep to get this get this up and running. So, but uh, don't worry, you won't have an episode in September, but we'll be back in November and it'll be like all the times before, so. Well, October. October, yeah, I forgot yep. about October. That comes mm -hmm. before November. I hope so. That's when my birthday is. <laughs> oh, see, that's why I was trying to forget about it. Mm -hmm. But, so, if you want to let us know if you like this episode or any of our other episodes, there's a couple easy ways to do that. You can send us an email at eclecticmediaproject at gmail.com or at wanttohearsomethinginteresting at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at POI Network. Either way, drop us a letter. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. Drop us an idea for an episode. If you've got something you'd really like us to look into and would like to hear about, let us know. We'll uh, we'll go ahead and do that. But other than that, Scott, any last words of wisdom? Not a whole lot. Keep an eye and an ear out. We do have a couple of conventions coming up. November in Madison will be at Gamehole Con. We will probably have uh, some type of presence there if you're in the area, come look us up. And in January, up in Wausau, we'll be, of course, at Evercon. We'll probably be recording most of our stable of podcasts at the convention. Yep, I'm uh, also working on a uh, plan to uh, get us a booth. Right. So we'll have a presence there as well. 
and possibly doing some promotional work for, for Evercon through doing interviews with vendors, special guests, artists, artists, like even like we did last year. Well, right. But even with people attending the, the um, convention. So yep. if you're in the Wasa area in January, besides feeling sorry for you because it's butt cold, stop by the convention. It's, it's a good weekend. It's a fun weekend. I don't know if we're going to run any games this year, but we'll definitely have the podcast going on and so look for us there. But yeah. All right. And with that, thank you guys for listening. We'll and see you next time. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.